thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damian Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to the Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damian Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicating bringing wellness to our lives. And today we're back on again, guys. It's th- like three in a row or something that we're on. This free is free, we're in a row. <laughs> we're on a row. I'm pretty excited uh, at, on t- today's topic because uh, it's we bring in a, I guess our guest who has been on the show before, got tons of feedback. She's actually presented at the Wellness Summit before as well. I'm really excited. Damien, I'm going to pass it on to you. Would you like to introduce our special guest for today? I thought you were going to steal my thunder, but, uh, Never. but you're not. Never. That's good. I'm glad you didn't. Um, everybody will remember this beautiful lady um, when she spoke about um, – you know, a toxic home. And uh, and many, many, many podcasts ago, we interviewed Nicole um, about topics around chemicals in our houses and how that influences our health and what we can do to make things healthier and better. But recently, um, there's been this explosion of mould. And I suppose as winter is upon us and people are using heaters and, um, and probably pulling the bed sheets back less often than what they would otherwise in summer, uh, people are getting sicker and it could be because of mould. And, and Lawrence and I were talking while I was walking this morning and we thought, why don't we interview Nicole again? So I'd like to welcome back to the Wellness Guys, Nicole Belsma, uh, to talk about mould in our homes. Welcome, Nicole. Welcome. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to have you back. Oh, it's great to have you, Nicole. Like, I mean, one of the things that when I moved to Sydney um, and uh, the previous owners in this house um, who, you know, built a f- beautiful house here and they moved into a rental and uh, they they went to the rental home and it was about a couple, maybe about two months later and they, you know, they, we, were ha- we had a chance, we, we kind of became friends and they told us how they moved into this house that were actually filled with mold. And not only did they lose, I think, pretty much 80 to 90% of their furniture, but more importantly, their kids, their three kids got sick, um, their wife got sick, they even they even had tech toxicology reports done, and to an extent that um, the wife's brain was, you know, she was focused, were a bit foggy, and they even tested, and that she actually found mold in her brain. That's how bad it actually got. Oh. And uh, they went through the whole compensation, um, you know, through, you know, lawyers and stuff. And, and um, you know, basically they got nothing back, like very, very minimal. They lost probably, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 worth of stuff. And they got compensated like in the thousands. Um, there's, you know, it's just wrong. And that's why I, th- I, wonder, I was really passionate about bringing you back on the show to, to talk about this because I think people need to be aware the – uh, the danger of, of a mold and and why it's so important uh, to, for us to talk about. So, Nicole, would you love to just sort of you know tell our listeners what is the what why how do we even find mold in the house? Like, is this something that we most house have, or is it something that only certain houses? What are we looking for? Okay, um, there's been an explosion of the impact of mold on adverse health effects in the body recently. And part of this is due to because we've changed the way we build our homes. We now have what we call fast food for mold. We don't have solid timbers. We have particle board, plywood. We've got food that's virtually pre-digested and perfect for mold to grow on. And because fungi is everywhere, it's from the Arctic to the Antarctic, spores are everywhere. They are nature's greatest decomposers. They play a really important role in um, nature in decomposing leaf litter and things like this. So fungi is everywhere. It's only going to be a problem, however, if you give it food or moisture. And because most of our homes and our furnishings are made from paper and 
you know, particle board and, and wood chips that are pre-digested, unlike solid timbers which naturally have resins which are fungicidal, what happens is as soon as you have moisture sitting on a surface for more than 48 hours, that fungi that's already sitting on there is going to have a field day. And now we understand that it's not just a fungi that's the problem. When you have water sitting on a surface for more than 48 hours, the bacteria also start producing endotoxins, fungi produce mycotoxins, the hyphae fragments that are released from the cells are also creating um, serious adverse health effects, especially in 24% of the population who cannot produce antibodies to mould. So essentially what happens is we know in Australia at least one in three buildings are water damaged, i.e. they have some degree of, um, you know, previous or history of water damage, flooding, drainage issues, plumbing problems, etc. Uh, in the States, they're estimating at least one in uh, half, 50% of buildings are water damaged, which means 24% of the population who walk into these buildings, every time they walk in, it sets up an innate immune response, which is the first line of defence, which is an inflammatory response. And what happens is these patients don't produce B cells, uh, antibodies by their B cells, so that next time they walk into that water damaged building, it doesn't result in the production of antibodies to mount an immune response and destroy these inflammagens quickly. So every time they walk into a water damaged building, it sets up this inflammatory response that doesn't shut down. Now, what happens is this inflammation um, destroys key neuropeptides in the brain, particularly vasoactive intestinal polypeptide and melanocyte-stimulating hormone, both of which have very important key roles in in regulating sleep because it affects melatonin. So they start off with fatigue and headache. They then get sleep disturbances where they don't sleep well at night. They start sleeping during the day because they're exhausted and that has massive ramifications for their health. At the same time, these hormones, particularly MSH, is important to stimulate and regulate endorphin release. So they have pain in unusual parts of the body. And most of this is due to inflammation in the capillaries, which sets up this inflammatory response, which restricts oxygen to the capillaries in the periphery in the limbs um, and it also results in increased lactic acid in their cells and mitochondrial dysfunction. So what happens is they can't thermoregulate, they get hot and cold, particularly cold. They have pain in their limbs which move around. So it's like an arthritis, arthritis moving around that makes no sense based on osteo or rheumatoid arthritis. It doesn't fit that picture. But basically, it's inflammation in the small capillaries around the body, which is causing these unusual pains, which is misdiagnosed as fibromyalgia, and inflammation in the brain, which causes brain fog. And the primary symptoms there are poor short-term memory, poor concentration, anomia is key. Now, anomia is a sign where they will be talking in mid-sentence, they forget words, they'll be staring at the object, that they want to describe, but they can't remember the word for that. So mid-sentence, they, they forget words. Now, brain fog is probably the most key symptom that practitioners need well, to be. Lawrence has that all the time. with brain fog and the problem is when you take a history with these patients because of the brain fog you can't get an accurate history of water damage or their symptoms so it's critical they have a family member or someone who lives with them to be able to provide an accurate um, history because the brain fog is literally affecting their brain so as far as the problem here, Nicole, is it the fact that there's just too much mould in our environment or is it because 
our immune systems aren't functioning as well as they could be, or perhaps we're not dealing with the mould as well as we should be, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of all of that, but the, the big one is the fact that we build tight buildings now. We have eight-star energy-rated homes that are like plastic bags, so it doesn't account for the condensation created from bathing, showering, laundering, um, from you know drying your clothes inside. All that moisture goes somewhere, and if you've got a tight building that's well-sealed, where does the steam go? It condenses, and then it forms water, and the water sits there for 48 hours and mould goes. The other issue is we've introduced since the 70s fungicides into our paints and our building materials. What happens when you introduce these chemicals is that you mutate the fungi to such a degree they become pathogenic. So this is a big reason why they're thinking that this, because mould's been around since mankind has been around, mm. it's really created an explosion because firstly we've got tight buildings now because of this energy efficiency, which is a load of BS, which I write about in my book, The Spring. <laughs> and secondly, we have condensation and condensation issues because of it. Also, because of the introduction of fungicides, which have mutated the fungi. So the fungi that sit on our building materials are not the type we had previously prior to the introduction of fungicides. They are very pathogenic. So once moisture hits that surface for more than 48 hours, you've just got a chemical stew of biological inflammagens that cause serious adverse health effects in certain genotypes. Nicole, there's people at the moment and they've had to pull over their car, cop off their bike or stop running because their head's about to explode. Because what you've said basically is that every home that's aspiring to have an energy star rating that's any good apparently um, is now a, a festering moisture mess of mould that's cesspool, essentially that a, cesspool, a cesspool of mould that's sending spores into the environment that everyone's breathing in and it's going to cause them disease. Is this what's happening? No, it only beca it's basically a time bomb ready to go off. The, the key issue is because all their food is there, because the fungi is there, the key to mould-related problems is moisture. So if someone has a flood and they don't mop it up within 48 hours, potentially it's going to be a problem. If they have um, gutters that are, are clogged and it's getting in through the roof cavity, that's a problem. If there's drainage issues, so moisture, as soon as moisture sits there for more than 48 hours, it's going to be a problem. Now, in some areas like the central coast of New South Wales, which is the mould belt of Australia, they have high humidity and that's a problem because once you approach 70% humidity, you're, the mould is going to start germinating and sporulating and growing, etc. So in those homes, you need to... In, for example, in tropical climates, they have the air condition on 24-7 because it acts as a dehumidifier and reduces the moisture in the indoor air climate, and that helps to reduce mould. However, in Central Coast and in Sydney particularly, because it's more a temperate, colder, a humid climate, you don't want the air conditioner on because it's cold. But, of course, the problem with that is because you're always approaching 70% humidity, it's a time bomb for mould-related problems, which is where we find most of our work. So... Um a lot of people who are sitting here listening to this thinking, well, that's not a problem. I've got some mould there, but I bleached it. That's not a problem. So um, I've heard you speak many times on this before, but for our listeners, I'd love you to talk about why bleach isn't the answer to the mould and what negative effects you know, bleaching the, you know, what out of your home might have. Okay. Bleach provides the perfect food for mould. What bleach does is it bleaches mould. So it, removes, it strips out the melanocyte so you can't see it. It strips out the colour of the mould, just like it strips colour out of everything. But within two weeks, the mould grows back because it never went. Now you've provided it with a food source to go off even more, like a party. Um, this is a huge problem. 
generally you don't use biocides or chemicals to get rid of mold. If you do, the mold reacts by sporulating and by releasing fragments which are very toxic. So actually using chemicals will increase the risk of exposure to mycotoxins. Oh my gosh, this is full on. So all right, we can't use we can't use um, bleach. No. Um, we can't we in microcides are gonna make um, the molds angry and so they'll get they'll fire back at us. What are we supposed to use to get rid of these molds? Okay, first get to the source of moisture because whatever you do is going to be fruitful, fruitless if you don't get to the source of the moisture. So if it's condensation, you know, get better ventilation in, in your home. In terms of physically removing it, a microfiber cloth that's dipped into an 80% to 20% white vinegar solution mm -hmm. is what you would use. That's what the mould remediators use. So they actually use microfiber cloths, they dip it into 80% white vinegar to 20% water solution and they literally physically with elbow grease remove it. If it's um, it's removed and the source of moisture is removed and still got black staining, then you might use bleach to bleach it so you don't see it, providing you got to the source of moisture. Otherwise, right. it just keep coming back. Now, you said white vinegar. That's not apple cider vinegar just for those health nuts out there. We're talking white vinegar, right? Yes, because apple cider vinegar will stain jiprock uh, and plaster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just wanted to make sure because the people go, well, I've got apple cider vinegar, maybe I could use that, but it's got to be white vinegar. Yeah. Okay, good. LT. So, Nicole, let's uh, talk about a little bit about, especially with kids, you know, like kids could get a lot of colds, you know, a lot of parents out there using uh, humidifiers to kind of keep the, you know, the child, uh, you know, be able to breathe at nighttime. You know, is that not recommended? Or, you know, and what are some of the ways to also, um, my part two, part B of the question is, what are some of the ways to, during the day, what can we do to kind of keep the house, um, you know, having airflow? Do we open the windows, let, you know, let it breathe? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in temperate climates like Melbourne, you know, um, opening windows, enhancing passive ventilation is really important. Being mindful how you use the house, you know, drying clothes outside, not inside. In summertime, of course, inside, if you're going to dry your clothes, then make sure you've got good ventilation in, in that space so that the humidity doesn't create moisture-related problems. Um, in, to, in humid climates, of course, what becomes important is actually sealing the home and using an air conditioner to reduce the moisture levels within the air itself. That's really important. So um, being mindful how you deal with moisture because the mould isn't the problem. Mould is everywhere. Fungi is everywhere. It's the moisture always that's going to create a problem if it's allowed to sit there for more than 48 hours. I, I feel like I'm back at, uh, back at you know, medical school where you sit in a lecture. You know, you sit in a lecture and they start talking about a different disease and every new disease they start thinking about, you start hearing these symptoms thinking, I think I've got that. You know? <laughs> and I reckon there's going to be so many people sitting at home going, oh my God, I've got mold all through my body, all through my brain. I'm just freaking out. So if you think you've got mold in your body, how do you test as to whether you've got mold in your body? Well, that's a difficult one because traditionally what we did is we didn't test and I feel that the majority of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome have mould-related illness or chemical or electromagnetic sensitivity, which is identical to the symptoms of mould. And this is because we're talking about a low-grade inflammatory response. Now, in terms of testing, the way to test is to check for inflammatory markers. And this is why it's been missed by the medical and health 
and naturopathic profession because we've been looking for the wrong uh, metabolites in the body. Instead of we're looking for fungi, etc., we don't look for fungi. We look for their metabolites and we look for inflammation because the consequence of exposure to these biotoxins is inflammation in the body. And these include things like melanocyte-stimulating hormone, melatonin, uh, vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, um, the split systems of complement C4A, for example, uh, inflammatory markers that are critical to our understanding now of inflammation in the body. But Nicole, um, if you went to your doctor to ask him to t- his test for melanocyte simulating hormone, or it, you, they wouldn't do it. They would <laughs> like just what? go, how about we just do a zinc test? Um, or just, what, you know, how, do, how do people get these tests done? There's only two GPs who do it currently in Australia. All right, we better f- free their books up because if you mention their names, they're going to be run off their feet. <laughs> Here we go. Who are they? I've listed them on my website. Okay. Tanya Ash in um, oh, yeah, Tanya's great. Pran in Melbourne. Yep. And oh, Sandeep Gupta in Mumbai oh, in Queensland. Dr. Gupta, yeah. Uh, because Richie Shoemaker, who's the doctor who's pioneering this research in the US, came to Australia this year in Sydney and he is training a group of integrative GPs and natural therapists on his protocol for treating mold. Now, unfortunately, it's expensive because there are so few labs. The labs we send it to go overseas because there's no one in Australia that is adequately looking at these markers. So the big thing for me is, the first thing you have to do even before you get to the GP is find out where is the moisture coming from because as long as these patients live or work in these water-damaged buildings, doesn't matter what treatment they get, it's not going to work until they address the cause of the moisture. So that's really important. Now, going back to the question previously that I didn't answer very well, in kids, uh, we know Fungi causes asthma, it exacerbates asthmas, chronic respiratory tract infections, colds and flus, worst-case scenario, pneumonia. What we didn't know up until recently was its impact and development of chronic fatigue syndrome and inflammation in the body, causing all those symptoms I mentioned, headache, fatigue, brain fog, sleep disturbances, fibromyalgic, musculaxis and pains. And, and I think now because we're starting to understand epigenetics, we understand that there are certain genotypes that are susceptible to this and we're now matching it with these inflammatory markers. It's really exciting time as a practitioner and particularly doing my PhD on environmental health is looking at the combination of chemical markers, biotoxins and epigenetics and our understanding of chronic illness. Couple of things that you mentioned there in regards to you know moisture, and one of the main things when on all households the shower in the bathroom, and you know one one of the things that I notice you know whether you're traveling you know in hotels or you know in other people's homes like there's always going to be that constant moisture in 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 the shower itself, and you typically see a lot of mold buildup, especially in the in the grouting uh, in the shower. Is is that dangerous? There is it something that we need to be aware of? To we and how do we if it is then how do we make sure that doesn't you know, obviously, because we can't, it's a shower. So it's hard to kind of eliminate the moisture. What do you, what should we do after each shower? And how do you clean that? Yeah, look, a lot of the time, that's not going to be an issue, a bit of visible mold in the grout, as long as it's superficial, which it often is. And if it is in the grout, and the silicon, you, you have to actually get it 
it's hard to get rid of it because it's particularly if it's under the silicon you have to regrout it basically um but the most important thing to prevent that is after a shower to get a microfiber cloth and just wipe the moisture away that will take you 30 seconds and that will prevent all of that happening in the first place but once it's in the grout it's difficult to get rid of it um short of bleaching it itself but you know wiping it is important in terms of testing as you mentioned uh into going back to showers uh, ventilation is critical. Where does that moisture go once it gets through the exhaust fan? Is it into the roof cavity where it condenses and forms moisture in the roof where it creates more problems? That's a huge problem because the building code of Australia doesn't require us to have adequate ventilation in the roof cavity. Ideally, if you're building, you would make sure that that ventilation from the exhaust fan is actually ducted to the exterior so it goes straight out. Another cheaper option to retrofit uh, some whirly birds in the roof cavity so when the steam gets in there, it's actually pulled out of the roof space and outside. And that will help a lot of, prevent of preventing a lot of mould-related problems. And so what about, the, what about the converse problem? So, you know, here in Adelaide, it's pretty dry. And often we find when we get to winter, people start using their air conditioners and they can really dry out the room as well. And, and so some people have troubles that it's too dry and that affects their sinuses and a whole range of other things as well. So how do you find the balance? How do you get it right between too wet, too dry? You know, how do you get that happy medium? Well, statistically, between 45 and 55% hum relative humidity is the ideal humid conditions to prevent allergies like house dust mite, asthma, pollens, mould, etc. If you can maintain that humidity in-house, most respiratory problems related to allergies would virtually disappear. Uh, to do that, you might need to do that mechanically, of course, because in a dry environment like Perth and Adelaide, uh, you don't have the humidity issues. But, however, as soon as you have a flood or a drain or plumbing issue that you didn't mop up within 48 hours, you're going to have a mould-related problems potentially. So you're, what we look for in dry climates like yours will be very different to what we look for in tropical climates like Queensland and central New South Wales. Nicole, often um, people talk about Melbourne being the allergy capital of Australia. Um, you know, people will go and live somewhere overseas, haven't had any asthma or hay fever or anything, they come back to Melbourne and bang, they're done. And then that people talk about, oh, it's about three years, and then after you've been here for three years in Melbourne, you won't get your hay fever anymore, that just kind of dries up and you'll be fine. Um, could we be saying that because of the, the climate that we have here in Melbourne that it's more mould rather than pollens and that sort of thing? No, I think in Melbourne we're situated between two basins and what happens is all the air contaminants stick and sit within our breathing zone in Melbourne because you don't have that airflow you find in a lot of other cities that aren't surrounded by mountains, the Macedon Ranges, the Dandenongs. Sure. So it's a basin that's creating and enabling pollens and allergens, um, dust mite grasses to sit within our breathing zones as opposed to high humid environments where there's so much moisture that a lot of these allergens don't stay around our breathing zone because of the water in the air. Mm -hmm. So that's why some people do get better going into high humidity where it's not related to mold-related problems. But Melbourne is particularly an issue. In the past five years, our understanding of allergies has dramatically changed to such a degree. We now know that, you know, how a child is born vaginally versus caesarean is important in terms of exposure to their microbiome. Whether they have a pet in the first two years of life is important to reduce their risk of allergies. The type of food that they're eating is important. Whether they have older siblings, 
siblings or not because the older siblings have their own microbiome or bacteria that will challenge that child's immune response in a positive way. So the explosion of information about the microbiome and bacteria in our houses and in our gut is a really important risk factor to reducing our risk of allergens, especially in the first two years of life. So what we're now knowing is, you know, with peanut allergies and food allergies, they're starting to introduce it because if they if they don't expose the child to that in the first year, then they're more likely to be allergic. Um, and I think this is an interesting thing. We're now having to realise that this compartmentalisation of medicine is not appropriate, that allergen, aller, allergists need to know about the microbiome. They need to know about nutrition. They need to know about the immune response. They need to know about chemicals because all of those have an interplay which result or not in the development of allergies in our children. You know, Nicole, like we've been, obviously you're creating an awareness, which is fantastic. I mean, a lot of people didn't not even realize that mold was such a big deal because when you go inspect a house, you know, whether it be a rental or whether you buy a house, you don't really think about mold. You think about, you know, structure, does look nice and all that stuff. So what are some of the things that people can do to their own house or when they go and inspect a house? What are they looking for? Because a lot of moisture that you, you've been talking about is actually hidden. It's hidden behind walls, hidden behind roofs. Is there any way to test or at least signs that we should be looking out for when we're, you know, observing, trying to find mold in the house? Yes, absolutely. Good question. There are several things we can do. Probably the most important thing I recommend you do is ask the neighbours before you sign a contract. In fact, I just wrote a a thousand-word piece for the Herald Sun on pre-inspection audits, what you should do and bring to an audit before you rent or before you buy a house. And a lot of that was bring marbles. You know, look at the inclination. When you roll marbles, it should not roll towards the house. The land should not slope towards the house. Otherwise, you know, that could be an issue for water ingression. Things like binoculars. Look at the flashing around the roof. Is the roof tiles missing? Is the gutters in a bad state of affairs? Is it broken? Are the drains actually draining adequately into the drains? Um, The neighbours are fantastic because there'll be someone in the street who the occupants have talked to about, oh, I just had a flood in the the laundry and, you know, I've got a bath or my kids have got allergies and, you know, um, they'll talk about the uh, flooding and the drainage issues in that house. So I really think probably the most valuable advice I give before you rent or buy a house is talk to the neighbours in the area about the house you're wanting to buy into. Also, when you go around, look for visible signs of mould. Use your nose. You know, any smell of dampness could indicate an issue. Unfortunately, because a lot of pre-inspection orders, they paint over it. You smell paint. You don't smell the dampness. So a moisture meter is critical when we're looking at pre-inspection orders to identify moisture in plasterboard and in timber and in concrete, uh, which you cannot see or feel by touching that material, that it's wet. And that can give us clear signs that there's issues. Other instruments we use are boroscopes to actually get into wall cavities and thermal imaging cameras help us to determine hidden moisture in things like roof cavities, um, subfloor and also in in the walls themselves. So, Nicole, we're talking about moisture meters and thermal imaging cameras. and you know, Your average person isn't going to have one of these. So who do they get to come in and help them inspect the house to look for these sort of issues? Yeah, so this is what a building biologist is trained to do and this is really the work that I do running the Australian College of Environmental Studies. We run nationally accredited training in building biology and that's that's what we do is to assess how buildings affect people's health. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is important tips that, 
clients can do is to use their five senses to identify potential problems. And if they suspect there's an issue and the neighbour has flagged that, yeah, there were moisture problems or flooding in that house, then get a building biologist to do a pre-inspection audit to identify if it's actually going to be a problem. The other issue also that clients can do is to actually use what's called an ERMI test, E-R-M-I, Environmental Relative Mould Index. And it's from the state, it's a couple hundred dollars, but it's well worth it because what it does is it uses PCR or DNA testing and you literally just get a sample of dust from the carpet in the living room and from the bedroom and then send it to the state. So they give you the instruments. You just use a vacuum cleaner to do it. Send the sample back to the state and they DNA test all the um, uh, fungi microbes that is in that dust to tell you about the history of mould and whether mould is actually going to be a problem in that house or not. That's fascinating stuff. And is there who who where do we find these um, practitioners or these yes. building biologists? Yeah, so you've got a list on my college website, which is A C E S A for Apple, C for Cat, E for Egg, S for Snake. Edu.au. So if you have a look at the college website under links, you'll see a list of building biologists, and also through the association, that's the ASBB.org.au. Uh, they're the Australasian Society of Building Biologists. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I think, you know, we'll definitely put our links, uh, all the links that's going to be available on our, our show page, which just go to thewellnesscouch.com. We'll put all the links there. And you've, you know, written some books and there's also DVDs. And um, and also, like, I think there's links to, we'll put in the link to a video or presentation that you've done. Um, could you tell us about, about that presentation and we can link it to it in our show notes? Yeah, sure. There's a um, presentation I did at a medical conference last year on the mould patient and really why chronic fatigue syndrome could actually be due in part to exposure to biotoxins. So I explain what disease fungi cause, what we understand about disease, two really important reports released by the World Health Organization and the US Governmental Accountability Office in 2008-9 and what we do understand mould as an inflammatory response and how what inflammatory markers occur in the body, the symptoms that it causes and more importantly the treatment and how we test for mould in the home. There's also a great movie available that's just come out called Mouldy Movie, M-O-L-D-Y Movie um, in the States. I think it's still free to download and that's well worth having a look at where they interview a lot of patients with um, mould-related illnesses that weren't helped by their doctors only to realise that it was caused by mould. Yeah, thank you so much. It's fascinating stuff. It's really important. I think you you know, to people become aware of this, um, as this is going to be a more of a bigger problem as as and more as once more people start to see it uh and they start to recognize it, I think it's gonna make a bigger impact. So thank you so much for your time and expertise. Pleasure, anytime. And I think that's uh we're also gonna do the first giveaway too as well. We're gonna give away um I think you said your books are all sold out. You have two left to for us to give away. Was that is that right? That's right, yes. Okay, excellent. So we have two books uh, to give away from Nicole. All we need you to do is go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Wellness Guys or The Wellness Couch. You want to hashtag us on uh, The Wellness Guys or hashtag TW, uh, The Wellness Guys or hashtag The Wellness Couch and also hashtag uh, Building Biology. And that way we'll, we'll get to see it and we'll sort of pick two winners and uh, we'll send you those uh, free books to you. Thank you so much the for donating that. Two. Thank you so much for donating the time, um, for, you know, really being on this podcast and sharing your knowledge. Anytime. Guys, go to a Facebook page, like I said, and uh, go after the books, the free books that we're going to give away. Share this podcast with your friends and families and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating or comments on iTunes. And until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.